We desire to be a church that's about pointing all people to a passionate pursuit of the radiant God. We value an intensely vertical, foundationally scriptural, deeply relational, genuinely authentic. Oh, that worshipers would increasingly bring glory to the Lord. That disciples would intentionally pursue life with Christ. And that God's people would joyfully pour out the gospel in their lives. Oh, that. Might even as we look forward and we look ahead, might by God's grace by 2030 that God somehow use us as a people to permeate the west side of Indianapolis with the hope of the gospel. Man, those are powerful words. Powerful words that we've laid down as a church and What's more important than them just being powerful is that they're biblical. We've been orienting ourselves around those words this year. This is an unlike year. This is a unique year here for us on Sundays together as a, a body, you know, just gearing up. January, we geared up as an aligned people, talking about those various things that I just noted. And then out of that, from February through June, it was gearing up as a as an equipped people. We want to be a people that is about discipleship deep. Amen? We, we want to be that, not fluff. Out with fluff. In with depth. We want that. Um, right now, we're talking about gearing up as a mobilized people. Because depth has a way of out of it, breadth and life expanding. It's just the way God created things. Sent forward. I love this imagery on the screens for this series. I just, I've loved it all year. Uh, I just love this idea. We are on a journey together and uh, in our communities and beyond. Uh, those three little plants behind it, what are those about? Oh, we'll get to those. Another Sunday. Sent forward being a mobilized people. Why be that? What is that? How do we do that? Well, last Sunday was the why. Last Sunday was the why of taking a look from Genesis to Revelation to take a look and see that God has created us and called us to participate with him in producing more light for his glory. God loves more like. He created the plants that way. He created the animals that way. And he has created us that way. And that is something that God wants to have. Out of depth comes breadth. For God's glory, not ours. For God's glory. And, and, oh, we want that. That's the why. That's why we're having this conversation. Because Genesis to Revelation talks about it. Well, today is the what. 
Uh, what does it look like to be a sent forward people? I'm not talking about how do we do it. I'm talking the bigger picture. I'll just say this. I'm kind of the type of guy, I love strategy kind of conversations. I really do. Back from my business years and my ministry years as well. I'm just wired that. I love that. I even remember watching like VH1. I don't even know if that's still around anymore, but they would have like the bands and so forth and they would tell their story of what's going on. And, and I just loved watching that and coming to learn. I, I remember reading a, a book about Henry Ford and how it got started. Lee Iacocca and how uh, thing transformed things around. Steve Jobs and how I just love those kinds of conversations. I want for you to know today is that kind of a conversation. Today is not so much of a sermon. Today is more like kind of, if you will, today is like a Bible class. All right, together in this. These first two Sundays are about setting the context for the how uh, to be in that. And, and oftentimes, I think uh, guys and, and churches will leave these first two conversations off the table, and I think it's a massive mistake because this is setting the groundwork for the conversation. Why be that? We talked last Sunday. What is it? That, that's what today is about. So uh, the best place to find answers for our questions is God's Word. So let's go to Matthew. Let's go to the Gospel of Matthew, the first Gospel of the New Testament. Uh, and we're going to, uh, last Sunday was go from Genesis to Revelation. Uh, this Sunday is, we're going to go through the whole book of Matthew. And we're going to see Jesus' strategy for the doing of ministry in all of this. Doug, why the book of Matthew? Because it's the first one in the New Testament. Literally, that's why. I mean, you can go to any four of them and have the same conversation with it. But I'll start with the first one. You can go to the next three and see the same thing going on with that. Today is about the practice of Christ. Uh, in that. Now, one for us to start, uh, chapters one and two are about the birth of Christ. There's only one verse out of these first two chapters I want for us to take a quick peek at, and that is verse 23 in chapter one. Uh, I think it helps us to uh, grab a hold of uh, why this is so important that we're looking at Jesus with this. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means what? You tell me. God with us. That is a divinity statement. Jesus is the second person of the Trinity, boots on the ground, in the flesh, born. Uh, I mean, Philippians chapter 2, just blow your mind with the whole reality of it all. And on the ground, doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. And, and we are going to uh, walk through the Gospel of Matthew. And we're going to take a look at, because if there's anybody I wanted to see a ministry strategy for, it would be, Sunday school answer, Jesus and uh, Jesus is God in the flesh, not just some hyped up guy on steroids in spiritual ways. All right? So if we really wanted to see a strategy, let's look at Jesus. And by the way, if we're to be more and more like Christ, might his strategy have some implications in considering how we do ministry strategy in all of our lives for Christ? Yes, it would. This is Christ. Well, let's take a look at that. So here's the question on the table. What was Jesus's ministry methodology? What was Jesus's ministry methodology? Answer I'm putting on the table. Jesus ministered to the many while discipling a few. Jesus ministered to the many while discipling a few. My whole goal for the next period of time here is to show you and help us see that that's not just something I've made up or others have made up with that same kind of statement, but we see it in the life of Christ. And by the way, if Jesus is about ministering to the many and discipling a few, so might we? Hmm, let's think about that. All right, so here we go. Let's dive in. 
Um, he reproduced himself in a few, uh, over a few, while also loving on the many. Chapters one and two, uh, the birth of Christ. We got that covered. Chapter three is the baptism of Jesus. Got that covered. Chapter four is the temptation of Jesus. Let's start diving into when he starts really the doing of ministry. Pick up chapter four, verse 18. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he, Jesus, saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, uh, last Sunday, I made mention, Matthew 4, 19 is a key verse for this entire series with it. So with that, you read it with me as I go there. Verse 19, and he said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. We know his whole objective. We know kind of how he's going about this in a certain reality. Follow me. And out of following me, I will make you fishers of men. We'll be diving into that more later. Verse 20. By the way, if you've been around here for some years, when we went through the Mark series, and in the Mark series, uh, I oftentimes had the word immediate in it, immediately in it. It's a BAM word. And so I had to say BAM in that. So here we go. Those of you who are around at that time. And immediately... They left the boat and their father and followed him. Kind of funny in that whole thing. Uh, actually, I think dad is like cheering them on. Uh, verse 23, and he went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, healing every disease, every affliction among the people, and his fame spread through all. Uh, listen, isn't it interesting? In the movement of it, the very th first things, we kind of get this idea of Jesus is entering into ministry. What's he's doing? He's going and he's calling a few to follow him, and he's also ministering to the many. That's what we see happen. He's going to the synagogues. He's ministering to the many. That's part of his strategy. Verse 25, end of chapter 4, and great crowds followed him. By the way, in a mad, really irritated, upset, ticked off world today, I want to suggest Jesus was the kind of person that drew people to him. People loved being with him, yearned to be with him. In this whole conversation, I'll just leave it at that. I actually think it's the same for God's people. Because in his day, people were ticked off and upset. And might we be a light that attracts people? Well, might that be the case of it? Jesus was one speaking the truth in it all and truth into their lives. And yet people just wanted to be around hearing that. Truth lovingly. In chapter five, verse one, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. By the way, do you see that in that one sentence? The crowd is there. He's about to do the sermon on the mount with them. And so in all of that on it, it's also, but then the disciples are there. You see the methodology right there in one sentence, ministering to the many. And while he's ministering to the many, he's also discipling a few. Let's continue on. Go to chapter seven. Again, I'm just wanting us to see this unfold. We get to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, verse 28. And when Jesus finished these sayings uh, to the many, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority, not as their scribes. Chapter 8, verse 1, when he came down from the mountain, again, great crowds followed him. We want to hear this truth that you are speaking in this. He's ministering to the many and the disciples who we know are watching all of this. Let's continue. Let's see this the theme moving on. We come into chapter eight, verse 23. Some ministry takes place. Jesus talks about faith. We know from Mark chapter four, right preceding this. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. 
And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep. And they they went and they woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid? Because we're going to die. Oh, sorry, that's me inserting that. And then he says, Oh, you of little faith. Then he arose and he rebuked the winds and the sea and there was great calm and the men marveled saying, what sort of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey? By the way, end of Sermon on the Mount, the crowds are stunned by his authority, are stunned by his teaching. And then we come a little bit later and here the disciples are with him in the boat on the Sea of Galilee and they are stunned by his authority. And what is the thing that Jesus leans in on with his disciples? Their faith. Why? Because again, Mark chapter 4, he just taught about what faith looks like and doesn't look like in the chapter preceding and puts them in this lab of life on the Sea of Galilee uh, to learn this out. Jesus is ministering to the many, and yet he's, he's, he's particular keying in on uh, these few. Uh, go to uh, chapter 9, verse 35. He's bringing the disciples along. He's ministering to the many. Uh, Verse 35, chapter 9. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease, every affliction, ministering to the many. And when he saw the crowds, he was so annoyed by them because he just wanted a break. He wanted to go get a a, a Diet Coke or a Diet Mountain Dew if it was me, a Cherry Coke if it was Pastor Nate. And it doesn't say that. It says, and when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. By what a wonderful, cool statement. He had compassion on them. Why? Because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. That is not someone who is annoyed by the many. That is someone who has compassion on the many. Oh, might we heed that. Of course they're going to do and say things that just seem foolish. Of course, because they're like sheep without a shepherd, in need of a shepherd. Oh, and in this very moment of as he sees the crowds, has, has a compassion on the, the many, in this very context, verse 37, then he says to the disciples, guys, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly, the Lord of the harvest has sent out laborers into his harvest. Do, do, do you not see that Jesus is leaning in? Guys, listen, it's not just about me doing all this. Guys, it's about, what about you? Hey, friends, God's people, the harvest is plentiful. The laborers are few. And he called to him, chapter 10, his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out, heal every disease and affliction. Isn't it interesting in the movement as Matthew is writing this, he's telling about the crowds. He's telling Jesus' love for the multitudes. Then he tells us about how he leans into his few disciples. He leans into them and he says, guys, the harvest is plentiful, the laborers are few. Pray that the Lord would send out laborers. And chapter 10 break just gets in the way because it moves right into Matthew's helping us see. And then what does Jesus do? Jesus gives them authority. 
This is, this is a mentoring reality, a discipling thing that's taking place. This is a strategic movement of how a leader begins to move others to be able to fulfill the call of the strategy that he himself is living out. By the way, follow me. You'll see my ministry strategy, and then I'll send you out, I would suggest, with the same ministry strategy. And then we come to chapter 10, verse 5. These 12 Jesus then sends out, instructing uh, go. And then verse six, go. Sounds like a commission. He's already helping them pray for the harvest because the laborers are few. I'm giving you authority. Now it's time for you to get some of your own experience. Listen, Jesus is discipling the disciples. You see it? He is strategically discipling the disciples as well as ministering to uh, the many. Go to chapter 14. Chapter 14. Other stuff happens. <laughs> chapter 14. Jesus feeds the 5,000. Have you heard of that one? Yeah, probably. Verse 14, chapter 14. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd. And again, he said to them, you all annoy me. No. And he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Now, when it was evening, the disciples, we've just gone from a conversation about the many to a conversation now about the disciples. Now, when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go to the villages, to go to Chick-fil-A to buy some food for themselves. But Jesus said, they need not go away. You give them something to eat. What? This is a teacher moving his students along. Yeah, we could do that. We could send them all away. But how about this? There's something better in all this. There's a ministry opportunity for the disciples to be discipled in their discipleship. And here it is where it's, what are you guys going to do? Let's think. Let's not push it off to someone else. Let's not push them away. How about you and I have a conversation about what you and I can do in this whole thing? And they're kind of like, I don't know. And they said to him, we have only five loaves and two fish. And he said, okay, you knuckleheads. No, he doesn't say that. He said, okay, bring them here to me. He's, he's leaned into them to try and get them thinking. And now he's going to, as a loving teacher would, he's now going to use the opportunity of life to be able to show them what can happen. Bring them here. And then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass. Again, there's some 5,000. By the way, if you see in the text, that's 5,000 men. That would probably likely about some 15, 20,000 people in this whole gig. He sits them down. He looks up to the heavens and gives a blessing. Can you just imagine that picture? All these people. And there he is giving this blessing unto the Lord with this. And then he takes those and he, he breaks them. And, and, and we follow the idea that uh, I think it's clear he gives them to the disciples to pass out. And, and the disciples are like, how does he break them? And he gives them to the 12 guys and then they're passing it out. And it's multiplying in their hands. I mean, they've got baskets, and, and, and I'm telling you, my R&D background, just, I so am not interested right at the moment. I want to make sure people get the food, but my head is in the basket. I'm like, and then I'm like, I'm just staying glued. How does this happen? Right? 
with what's taking place in it. What a crazy, awesome discipling moment. Talking about hands-on ministry for others outside of yourself, and you are seeing God do a work in you that you know it's not because of you. And the Lord is moving them along, ministering to the masses, ministering to the many, while discipling a few. Oh, and then we go to chapter 15, verse 32. Uh, do you see the heading there? Jesus feeds the 4,000. Well, isn't it the same thing just repeated? No, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a whole different situation, but very similar. Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd. Are you getting the idea that Jesus loves the many? He loves the many. He loves the broken. He loves the lost. They're not annoying to him. They're ministry for him. They've been with me now three days. They have nothing to eat. And I am unwilling to send them away hungry. The disciples just said to him, where do we get enough bread, uh, food with this desolate plows for the crowd? And, and isn't it at this point in time, you're like, listen, I have a little marker, so I know where to read. Like, that's where it was at 5,000. That's where at 4,000. Couldn't they remember from there to there? Right? I mean, I, I don't know. It wasn't a day. It probably wasn't a week. It could have been months. Uh, between this period of time. But isn't it interesting? Wouldn't you think that feeding five twenty thousand people would be a memorable moment? And then now you're at a 4,000, 16,000 opportunity moment. Wouldn't you connect the dots? But bless their hearts, they didn't. And I'm so serious about this, that gives me massive hope. Because the Lord doesn't respond to them like, oh, ay, ay, ay. What does the Lord do? You can read it. How many loaves do you have? Seven and a few small fish. Okay. Have them sit down. I wonder if it's at that point that Peter's like, oh, that's right. Deja vu, right? Ah, <laughs> oh, and Jesus does it again. What a memorable discipling, mentoring moment. Chapter 16, here, here's a, a, a narrowing in on them. Verse 13, with the disciples, he comes to the district of Philippi. He asks his disciples, hey guys, let's have a, like a one-on-one -on -one kind of one-on-12 conversation. Who do people say the Son of Man is? Well, some say that John the Baptist, some say Elijah, some say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, oh, here, here's, here's the real question. Hey guys, been a little while together now. Who do you say that I am? Again, what a mentoring moment. Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Bam. And Jesus answered him, this is interesting. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood have not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. Isn't that interesting? Even as it's like, bam, you got it. That's what we're talking about. But even Jesus, the second person of the Trinity is kind of giving, I would suggest, this model that he realizes it's the Father's the one who's doing the work in Peter's life. By the way, that so reminds me of Paul, uh, Paul uh, uh, waters, Apollos plant, or Paul plants, Apollos waters, but God gives the growth. Listen, friends, you and I have never brought anyone to Christ on our own. None of us. 
All of that work is God doing a work and bringing a person to Christ. None of us have ever ourselves, in and of ourselves, say, I'm the one who's responsible for being able to make Bob or, or Sally be able to make growths in Christ. No, no, no. We are just participants in the reality of God at work. And I'm getting myself ahead of myself in the ministry or in the series of this. But that's what's happening even here, I think, setting for us an example. Let's keep going. Uh, chapter 19, the disciples, uh, they struggle to get real ministry with kids. Chapter 19, then the children brought to him that he might lay hands on them and pray. And the disciples rebuked the people. Ah, you people are annoying, especially bringing your snotty little kids around. Jesus said, Oh, guys, that's in there. That's in the Greek somewhere in there. Oh, guys, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them for such belongs to the kingdom of heaven. And he laid hands on them and went away. What a moment. Chapter 20, verse 17. And as Jesus is going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside and, and on the way he said to them, see, we are going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified and he will be raised on the third day. Friends, I think you and I have a really hard time understanding what an absolute mind blow this was for the disciples at the time. Because I think the disciples at the time are fully thinking that Jesus is coming in as the Messiah and he's going to enter into Jerusalem and he's actually going to set up the kingdom and there's going to, they're going to be his posse right around him and the kingdom is going to come as is talked about in the Old Testament. And Jesus is like, hey, we're coming into Jerusalem. By the way, I'm going to be crucified. And they all knew what crucifixion was. And I just sit here and in this and I just go, their minds must have been blown. discipling them. Chapter 21, 22, triumphal entry, cleanses the temple. Jesus takes on the leadership. Chapter 23, verse 1, and Jesus said to the crowds and his, his disciples, again, ministering uh, to the many while discipling the few, and, and the rest of the chapter is about Jesus giving these woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. What a moment of instruction to, to Jesus leaning in and, and, and calling out the, the falsities of the religions, uh, the religion and the structure of the day of it all. And then 26, verses 1 and 2, 24, 25, he teaches about what's to come. When Jesus, verse 1, had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, you know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. He's reminding them and then it's the Passover, it's the upper room, it's the Last Supper, it's Gethsemane. It's Peter's denial, chapter 27 is the crucifixion, chapter 28, the resurrection and his revealing of himself resurrected. And then it comes to the very last paragraph of Matthew 28, the commission. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. He's speaking to these ones here, these 11. And when they saw him, they worshiped him. He's resurrected. But some doubted. 
Oh, not some of the crowds, some of the few. Some of the 11 disciples are still going, I'm still figuring this out. And Jesus here doesn't give this commission to the ones who are on board. Jesus gives this commission to all of them, including the ones who are still trying to figure out what just happened. And Jesus came and he said to them, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Make disciples. How do you make disciples? Follow me. Follow me and learn how to make disciples. How, what was Jesus' methodology? Ministering to the many while discipling a few. And the truth of the matter is, is the ministry is banked on those few. Hey, God's people, we love the many. I think one of the greatest missing ministry realities in all of Christianity is the reality of discipling a few. Let me know. It's the end of Jesus' ministry. And how well did his ministry strategy work? I'd actually kind of say, eh. Why do you say that? Because you get to the end, 1 Corinthians tells us that there were some 500 that saw him resurrected, and then you got these 11. Okay, so, man, I'll just say in three years, you got an awesome church there. You got great leaders, and you got a, a great group of people there. But, but let me bring it back to this conversation. This is the Messiah. This is God in the flesh. This is the one that has been talked about from the very beginning of Genesis, in Genesis chapter 3, has been talked about coming. This is God in the flesh. How would he do ministry? And when he leaves, he's got 11 guys and 500 followers. And I'm just sorry, as a human, I go, that's it? Like, that's your strategy? Yeah. That's exactly what his strategy was. Hey, question. Would you rather have a million dollars today or a penny doubled every day for a month? Let me ask it this way, in, in maybe same idea. You can Google it and find the answer to that. I'll just tell you, I'd rather have the doubled. Well, let me state it another way. Would you rather have a million dollars today? I'll even up that. Would you rather have $5 million today? Or would you rather have a penny doubled every month for three years? You, you do the math. I'll even up it. You want $10 million today? Or do you want a penny doubled every month for three years? I'll take the double. Addition plus addition leads to multiplication. Jesus ministered to the many while discipling a few. Uh... The Master Plan of Evangelism, written in 1963, I believe. Um, it was written in, I'll call it in America, it was written in Billy Graham Ministry Days, which is fantastic. If it were written today, I think the correct title would be The Master Plan of Discipleship. Um, one of the top three most impacting books in my entire life, and I am not kidding. 
First time I read it was when I was at the University of Minnesota when I was 20 years old. Listen. Beginning of chapter one. It all started by Jesus calling a few men to follow him. This revealed immediately the direction that his strategy would take. His concern was not with programs to reach the multitudes, but with men whom the multitudes would follow. Remarkable as it may seem, Jesus started to gather these men before he ever organized an evangelistic campaign or even preached a sermon in public. Men were his method of winning the world to God. The initial objective of Jesus' plan was to enlist men who could bear witness to his life and carry on his work after he returned to the Father. John and Andrew were the first invited by Jesus. Andrew, in turn, brought Peter. Then next day, Jesus found Philip on his way to Galilee, and Philip found Nathanael. There is no evidence of haste in the selection of these disciples, just determination. James, the brother of John, is not mentioned as one of the group until the four fishermen are recalled several months later by the Sea of Galilee. Shortly afterward, Matthew is called to follow the master as Jesus passed through Capernaum. The particulars surrounding the call of the other disciples are not recorded in the gospel, but it is believed that they all occurred in the first year of the Lord's ministry, which would have been right around three years. As one might expect, these early efforts of soul winning had little or no immediate effect upon the religious life of his day, but that did not matter greatly. For as it turns out, these few early converts of the Lord were destined to become the leaders of his church that was to go with the gospel to the whole world. And from the standpoint of his ultimate purpose, the significance of their lives would be felt throughout eternity. What is more revealing about these men is that at first they do not impress us as key, being key men. None of them occupied prominent places in the synagogue, nor did any of them belong to the Levitical priesthood. For the most part, they were common laboring men, probably, not, uh, probably having no professional training beyond the rudiments of knowledge necessary for their vacation. Uh, perhaps a few of them came from families of more considerable means, such as the sons of Zebedee, but none of them could have been considered wealthy. They had no academic degree in the arts and philosophies of their day. Like their master, their formal education likely consisted only of the synagogue schools. Most of them were raised in the poor section of the country around Galilee. Uh, Apparently, the, uh, the only one of the 12 who came from the more refined region of Judea was Judas Iscariot. By any standard of sophisticated culture then and now, they would surely be considered as a rather ragged collection of souls. One might wonder how Jesus could ever use them, for they were impulsive, temperamental, easily offended, and had all the prejudices of their environment. In short, these men selected by the Lord to be his assistants represented an average cross-section of society in their day. Not the kind of group one would expect to win the world for Christ. Yet Jesus saw in these simple men the potential leadership for the kingdom. They were indeed unlearned and ignorant according to the world's standard, but they were teachable. Though often mistaken in their judgments and slow to comprehend spiritual things, they were honest men willing to confess their need 
Her mannerisms may have been awkward and their abilities limited, but with the exception of the traitor, their arts were big. What is perhaps most significant about them was their sincere yearning for God and the realities of his life. These men were looking for someone to lead them in the way of salvation. The harvest is plentiful. Labors are few. Such men, pliable in the hands of the master, could be molded into a new image. Jesus can use anyone who wants to be used. One more paragraph. So let's begin where we are and train a few of the lowly to become great. Here is where we must begin, just like Jesus. It will be slow, tedious, painful, probably unnoticed by people at first, but the end result will be glorious. Even if we don't live to see it, seen this way though, it becomes a big decision in the ministry. We must decide where we want our ministry to count in the momentary applause of popular recognition or in the reproduction of our lives in a few chosen people who will carry out our work after we are gone. Really, it is a question of which generation we are living for. Might embracing a personal ministry model like ministering to the many and discipling a few be something that you and I should consider? Ministering to the many in our homes, in our, in our community, in our schools, in our work. By the way, Radian, I want to say thank you for being ministering to the many people. I think of parking and greeting, cafe. I think of seating and singing and listening and loving. I think of kids' ministries and student ministries. I think of small groups. I think of elders. I think of pastors. I think of cleaning and mowing, praying, visiting, calling, giving, loving, serving. Thank you. Those are all ministering to the many. Oh, by the way, and then outside of here, in our communities and in our neighborhoods, I'm just going to make an observation. When God's people are involved in ministering to the many, it shows in their walk with Christ. When God's people are not involved in ministering to the many, it shows in their walk with Christ. Discipling a few. Let me lean into this just in the closing minutes here. Do you want a vibrant, adventurous, deep life with the Lord? Disciple someone. You want a deep life with the Lord? Then it's time to disciple someone. Because that's where you get pressed and pushed and, 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 and I have a dream. What if, what if a thousand people, a thousand adults and junior, senior hires, a thousand people from this church, what if a thousand people from this church decided to uh, invest themselves in ministering to one person every three years, and I'll even be this specific, one time a month for two hours. By the way, that would mean someone outside of us. 
Maybe someone who doesn't know Jesus yet or who needs to be led along to understand what it is to know Jesus and just needs to be sit down and go through the book of John with them. Maybe it's someone who is stagnant in Christ and needs to be refired for Christ, but yet has hurt and heavy that needs someone just to walk with them for a period of time. What, what if that happened? What if we began praying right now that each of us next year that God, would you bring someone in each of our lives that we could, outside of us, and along with other things going on, but outside of us even, to minister to them, even just once a month, for three years. Doug, I don't know how to do that. Hang around, because we're going to be talking about what that looks like over the coming weeks. By the way, you may say, I'm just too young in the Lord. Okay, no, you're not. In college, University of Minnesota, guy in our hall came to Christ. He had been discipled along for four weeks after coming to Christ. As a result of his life, another guy in the hall comes to Christ as a result of Scott's change. Scott comes. Hey, Will you disciple him like you're discipling me? No. But I'll disciple you to disciple him. Four weeks in Christ. And he already had a guy he was discipling. Friends, the Lord wants to use us bigger than we can think. And let me just finish it with this. The west side of Indianapolis the west side of Indianapolis. This uh, map uh, is a few years old. There are 364 households on it. Uh, yes, I counted them. I am that weird. Um, that's the west side. Just, just, let me just throw this out. What if by God's grace, a thousand people here or let's say a thousand here is too many. Okay, let's get some from Kingsway and let's get some from west and let's, okay? God's people, what if a thousand people discipled a thousand people for three years and then discipled another people? By 2030, there would be some 4,000 disciples discipling some 4,000 new disciples. 8,000 souls. Sounds like the end of Acts chapter 2. What if by God's grace then, out of that, if that continued by 2037, 15 years from now, some 30,000 disciples would be discipling some 30,000 new disciples. That's 60,000 souls on the west side of Indianapolis for Christ. Oh, and then if what, by 2043, 20 years from now, some 50,000 disciples were discipling some 50,000 new disciples of Jesus. That's 100,000 disciples. What's the population of kind of the west side area? Oh, round numbers, about 100,000 people. Well, then we've, bat we've, we've, we've ended the whole thing. No, we haven't because over the next 20 years, it's probably going to double in size. Now we got 100,000 for the 100,000 to disciple. I'm just saying, can you imagine? Doug, you're talking about numbers. No, I'm talking about souls for Christ. I, I, why not?
one every three years. Lord, I pray might you just do a work on the west side. God, I pray that you would do a work in our lives. Lord, I'm just having the conversation and the thoughts and just literally throwing out ideas at this point. Just might it, might it, could it, could it? Uh, Oh God, we think too small. We think too, it's all about me. You love the many. You love the multitudes. You have compassion on them and you desire that they would all come to know you. And Lord, out of that, you would desire that your disciples, that those are redeemed in Christ, that they would be ones who would engage themselves in in the commission to make disciples. Oh God, I'm not putting a program on the table at all here. I'm just having a conversation that, oh, might you do something like this? Something so beyond what we could imagine that we know it is only because of you. So here we are, God. Do a work in our lives, I pray. All for your glory, all for your glory, all for your glory. Thank you, Lord, for who you are. Amen.